Caution. Learning in progress. Hello and welcome in everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Smarter Every Season. My name is Tyler Hubert and I am joined in studio today in Tremont, Illinois. And I should stop for a second and remind everybody, this is the podcast brought to you by the product support team here at Precision Planning. I I almost feel like I got to say that a little bit tongue in cheek because we really just ask the questions. It's so many other departments and so many other folks across Precision Planning and our dealer network that are really the stars of this show, right? Yeah. So we're just the ones that kind of run aboard. Yeah. More or less, right? Yeah. And ask yeah. questions. Yeah. We ask questions, we run aboard, and then we ask more questions. That's right. And that question asker is Freya Watson. That How is, are you? I am doing great. I am super happy to be back. Tyler let me back with the microphone. So that's Yeah, cool. I don't know where the key went that locks the door. So Freya's <laughs> back in. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, so Frey and I were actually just talking before we kind of hit the record button about our experiences uh, coming off of, of PTI or visiting the PTI farm. Um, I'm not sure this probably airs, you know, sometime uh, a few weeks from, from now. We're recording here toward the end of August, but uh, we were just kind of reminiscing about our time out at the, the PTI farm. Uh, what were kind of some of your takeaways or your thoughts from this year? There's a lot of new technologies between the sprayer and then there's the new bins out back um, and the GSI like grain moisture sensing technology. Yeah. Um, so that's really cool to be able to not only like our, our hub is not a showcase for just us. Yeah. We're, we're bringing in some other people and getting to showcase. That is actually a great takeaway, and I'm going to steal that one and piggyback off okay. it because it really is – PTI is not just about precision planning. It's a learning experience for the grower, uh, and Jason did a really awesome job with that this year. I even think, like, you had a great point about GSI mm-hmm. and some of the learnings going on out there with, with bins and grain storage. Uh, I learned a ton yesterday about drones. Yeah. And Jason doesn't refer to them as drones. Uh, I, th- what, I think what he calls you- them UFAs. But I can't, I can't remember Not UFOs, what that, though. No. Well, they don't I go don't fast know. enough for that? Right, right. Nobody got sucked up <laughs> out in, into the sky. <laughs> well, we're joined today by a couple of our coworkers from Germany. Yes. Um, and we're going to go ahead and bring them in. And I'm going to let them uh, uh, tell us a little bit about themselves. But first we have uh, Torsen. Yes. Did I say right. it right? Yeah. Okay. I have learned that it's best to let you pronounce your full name and for me to just be quiet. <laughs> So I'll let you do that. Could you tell us a little bit about um, your role with precision planting in Germany? Introduce yourself, your full name, and uh, tell us a little about yourself in terms of how you how you came to precision planting. Yeah, sure. Thanks, guys, for, for having us. We are really happy to be here. So my name is Torsten Sitterlin. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it. I, I'm sometimes struggle with that, too. It, it, <laughs> don't even worry about the pronunciation because y- it sounds so much better when you do it than when I do it. Okay, I'm glad. <laughs> so, yeah, I am one of the, I'd say, later team members of Precision Planting um, Europe. I'm the region manager for everything around Germany, all the countries there speak in German. And I'm blessed to be part of a European team that I think now holds around 16 or 17 people. So we, yeah, we grow quite exponentially over there. And every single one of us is bringing a lot of skills to the table. And I think the mix really is what excited me the most because everybody has 
you know, a little focus area and you know that everybody got each other's backs, which is great. <laughs> Definitely. So I'm going to turn it over then to Lara. Hi, Tyler. How you doing? Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I think your last name is spelled H-E-Z-L-E-R. That's right. Just so that everybody knows that I, you know, I do know your last name. I took the time to learn that. Um, but again, it's so much better when you pronounce it. So why don't you introduce yourself, pronounce your last name, and, and same as Torsen. Let's hear a little bit about how you came to Precision. My name is Lara Hetzler. I'm product support specialist from Germany. I'm the latest addition of the team. I joined Precision in April this year. Um, straight from university, I studied agricultural engineering in Germany and did my master's there um, before I joined Precision. Um, for me, it was really clear to do something um, in a sector of agriculture and also engineering. Then smart farming came up, and um, then I, I um, discovered precision, and yeah, that was all, all in one. Um, I was very lucky to to join the team there, and um, also with the international aspect. Um, yeah. Now you do come from a farming background. I do. Yeah, yeah. I still work there um, with my with my dad and my brother. Um, it's in the south of Germany. Um, we farm around 100 hectares, and let me think, I th that's about 250 acres. Um, that, that sounds right. right. Yeah. I'm yes. going to pull up a converter here just for the whole conversation. Well, I did write down in preparation <laughs> for this, because I thought hectare and acre, this conversation might come out. So a hectare is about 2.2 acres. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. It's about 220 to 250 acres, let's say. Yeah. 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 And we also have pullets, and we do a lot of... Um, lumbering okay like okay so i think to to understand that is that kind of like uh you're dropping trees or trees for kind of like like wood production type that's stuff? about right yeah. yeah okay awesome and i'm curious what kind like what species of trees because when i'm picture lumbering i'm always picturing like pine or spruce like big trees like that but that's not always the case foliage trees foliage trees so the, do they go into, like, paper? I guess, what do you make out of them? Well, <laughs> that depends. Uh, we can do paper out of them, and we also do, like, um, selling it for just okay. burning. <laughs> okay, I got gotcha. you. Okay. Private households, yes. Gotcha. Got it. That, got it. That's perfect. So it's kind of funny. I think I should point this out because I think it was episode, like, 34. We had a group from our Argentinian team that came in. And we did similarly. We sat down with them. We learned a little bit about what did um, the precision planning adaptation look like in Argentina. Sitting down here to talk with you guys, I think it's funny, Torsten, what was one of the first things that you just mentioned that was your concern with, with your team or with the German team being on the podcast? Well, as I think everybody knows out there, the, you know, German folks are not known for humor quite a lot. So uh, <laughs> we were a little afraid of coming here, you know, um, listen to that podcast as well. And we basically laugh our eyes out. But we will probably not have the same spirit here because there's no humor whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, I don't believe that one bit. I don't either. I've hung out with you for too long now to know that. Okay, Laura, I want to come over to you. I had a question for you. Your family farms about 100 hectares. Mm -hmm. uh, about, we just said, 220 acres. What is the typical farm size? Is that a typical farming operation in Germany? Or I guess take us through a little bit of that and start with what common hectare sizes. 
Well, uh, generally speaking, German farmers farm around uh, 60.5 million hectares, which will be around 40 million acre. Um, I would say the average farm size is apparently 63 hectares, which will be, what, like 155 acres. Yeah. 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 And then you should also divide between um, farm fully or just half time. Um, yeah. People going to work and farm afterwards. These farm mostly... Um, so you said something, too, that I want to dive into. That number of about 60 to 65 hectares being a, an average, would you say that's for somebody that farms part-time or has different jobs as well? Or help me to separate what does a, a part-time farmer farm, how many hectares versus somebody that does it you know, full-time? So like from my perspective, I think there's no number that fits everything. It really depends on the region and the way they market their crop. So, you know, there, there could be a farm with those 150-something acres basically marketing all their product themselves uh, and generating a higher value because there's no middleman in between. So they would be good with just that number of acres. And then there's others who maybe work in another industry, like, uh, you know, we're pretty big in cars over there, uh, probably the same uh, here. So they would... They would just do that uh, on the side. And um, yeah, it applies to both worlds, I think. Gotcha. So when you were saying, you, you dived into a little bit about like marketing, so a full-time person might have, um, it, it kind of sounded like a contract to an end user, and this is me being an American making German assumptions <laughs> that maybe they would Go be marketing <laughs> straight to a brewery. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that yeah. sounds about right. It's a bit stereotypical, right? Yeah, yeah. You got us there. So are most farms family-owned then, or, or what does that kind of look like? I'd say a lot, yeah. Um, it, it kind of depends on the area, really. Like, we have a lot of small-scale farms in the south where Lara is coming from. I also originated from that area, so you would find a lot of dairy farms back there, so they... They would usually use everything they grow for for their livestock, okay. and then you would, uh, if you look a little bit more towards the east, the northeast, which formerly was uh, the DDR, uh, which was kind of eastern Germany back in the day when we were divided, you find bigger farms that kind of rented everything out to the government, and they are now sometimes family owned, sometimes it's like a bunch of people running the farm and sometimes it's investors running them. So it's kind of a, a big mix in between. That's very interesting to point out that in Eastern Germany, it would be different because it was yes. a very different political climate and a lot of things changed very quickly there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's for very, sure. I never would have thought of that. That's also why a lot of guys try to transition from the south to the east when it, when they oh, opened back yeah. in the 90s because they tried to, you know, it's what was probably like the gold rush over yeah. here. You know, they tried to find the gold. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not super uncommon here, I think, Lara, too, for some people to farm a little bit, we'll say, on the side. They have a full-time job through the week, and then, um, you know, they will come home, and, and we may call them hobby farmers, but they may farm 50 to 100 acres or somewhere in there, and, and that's going to vary. Is it very common to see people that – um farm just part-time oh yeah that's really common it yeah. is yeah it also depends um of course um on the size of the farms and also how many people work there um, maybe how many family members do you have mm. maybe how many kids the, uh, 
um, the farmers has and how many employees. So he is able to go um, work somewhere else in the industry and come back to his farm um, and farm there for the rest of the day, yeah. So in those areas, and that's a very, uh, that's still a very agricultural area, right? That's right. What are common crops there? Well, the most common crop, I would say, uh, would be wheat. Um, we we grow around uh, 3 million hectares. Um, we have a, which will be 7.7 million acres. Yeah, um, I think that's about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, second common would be corn. Um, we provide a lot of um, corn for dairy farms and biogas plants. Um, also, there will be a lot of barley and canola. Um, depends on the region, you know, in the western part of Europe, uh, Germany would be a lot of horticulture going on. Also on the Lake of Constance, which will be in the south of Germany. Yeah, Just because of the soil types, they're really fertilized and good to grow um, vegetables. What then in the, in the eastern portion, what's kind of a typical farm size? That sounds, it sounds to me like the way you said it in Torsen, maybe I'm wrong, is that would be more of your full-time farmers and some bigger operations? Yes. So they would usually have a couple of guys running the farm. Some of them run different departments, you know, like a livestock department, maybe an agricultural department okay. for, you know, all the field work. And some of them were, um, you know, kind of in purchasing. Um, so they could range from... Let's say uh, like a thousand acres to up to like uh, fifteen eight fifteen thousand acres maybe in that range, yeah. But the, the more acres they have, the more people are usually involved. So they would have full time employees running the equipment, overseeing livestock operations and stuff like that. And most of them, and that's I think that's um, applying to me. Like you know, I come from a dairy background, so I would usually try and I don't know try to organize an exchange with these guys and drive tractors during during holidays and stuff like that because they also depend on those volunteer drivers especially during harvest season it's probably the same in the u.s i guess yeah yeah Yeah. we kind of deal a little bit with some of the government regulations especially right now uh i think kind of a hot topic is is cdl licenses or licenses to be able to haul grain for somebody our government is becoming uh, more and more strict on that um i don't know if that's kind of a challenge too in germany (laughs) or if that is just kind of like well, you're talking to two folks uh, coming from a country that uh, uh, really loves regulations. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I don't want to jump ship here, but um, go you, ahead, jump. You need you need a license for everything, you know, like for a car, for a car with a trailer, for a bus, for a tractor, for a lorries. So, th- that is also a struggle for most of these guys because depending on what you want to haul, you need a different license. Um, and a lot of young folks, they usually don't dip their toes into that because they are super expensive usually. Yeah. <laughs> we would have done a lot of illegal things growing up <laughs> if Freya. that was the case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit then about um, your planting season looks very similar to what ours does. You're probably, planters are probably going to the field April, May kind of time frame, right? That's Depending on right. where they do sugar beets. Uh, if they do, it would be a little earlier even. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah okay. we're talking about corn. That's about right. Yeah. yeah. Same time. Okay. Okay. With then harvest coming around, then kind of the late September, October, kind of November time yeah, frame. Okay. Right. Yeah. So common crops, I think, that we kind of talked about was, yes, you mentioned corn. Wheat. You mentioned wheat. 
uh, how how popular are sugar beets? Do, do you guys do you see that quite a bit? Are there a lot of farmers that do sugar beets? Yeah, it's 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 good to say that there's an, an area in the south where there is still a lot of concentration with sugar beet. They they still grow quite a lot. The reason for the focus area might be that you need very specialized harvest equipment, which in Germany is like, you know, pretty big. Like those would be the self-propelled harvesters. I'm not sure if you have these a lot in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, they usually need to be purchased in a group or by a contractor who runs, you know, a couple of them and then travels through the countryside and harvests all of the crop. So talk to me a little bit about that. A lot of it is done with self-propelled harvesters? Yes, yes. Okay, and these are these are specialized? Yeah, so imagine a, a combine that has like three axles, three wheels on each side, and is like, I don't know, they, they could weigh up to, I think, 50, maybe even 60 ton fully loaded on the field. Okay. And and for our roads back home, that is a challenge. Like the, the overall size of such a machine, uh, you per- could probably compare to a cotton picker over here. Like it's, it's gigantic, right? <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about that. Um, if there's some challenges with, with roadways or with travel because of narrow roadways, is that yes. correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why do most people, I, I assume that they hire then this person to come in and harvest their crop. Why is that common practice? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I think it's just the beauty of it. Um, I guess you guys have maybe a kind of a two-stage harvest system around here. So you, baby, uh, you basically like chop all the um, the leaves off, and then you pull the sugar beet out and, you know, lay them in a thwath, and then you kind of collect them in a second path maybe. Yeah. Okay. So you're the, – the the self-propelled, is that specifically for sugar beets? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some some of them also do uh, a couple of other crops, uh, but I do not know the English word for it. <laughs> but mainly they, they do run in sugar beet, yeah. It's but they're, I'm guessing they're root crops. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I assume maybe that that's kind of done so that – not everybody needs a sugar beet harvester, that there's somebody that can come around and do that without the farmer having to own the piece of equipment. Yes. Is that yeah. commonplace too then for like corn harvest and wheat harvest? Could be, could be. So what the, you know, what I mean by that, it's, it's hard to find the right words for it, but I'm pretty bad with the special words here. So usually it's a bunch of growers who all grow like sugar beets, for example. They all get together in that group. They purchase that uh, self-propelled sugar beet harvester together. And then every single person involved in that group takes different actions during the season. For example, there's probably a couple of guys running that harvester in shifts so that, you know, the the efficiency is is rising a little bit. And then there's other guys uh, running what we call the mouse. It's another machine that basically picks up the sugar beets in case they get stored in in, in a field area. Usually, you know, the the self-propelled harvester chops them off puts them on the side of a field, and then they sit there for, um, you know, a couple of days or s- sometimes even a little longer. And then there's other folks running the trucks to the mill, basically. Yeah. Okay. So I may have missed this earlier, but can the machines that do sugar beet harvest in Germany, are they also cutting and harvesting at the yes. same time? Yeah. Yep. Cool. One I have pass. not seen that. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty good, actually. In my limited <laughs> experience, yes, I think you're right. In the U.S., basically, they come around and they chop the tops off, and then there's a machine that would then come yeah. in almost like two blades that kind of pick them up out of the ground and load them into yeah, yeah. a conveyor. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Neat. So um, what are the common management practices then? Let's get into corn, or, or let me back up a second. <laughs> common crops, sugar beets, wheat, corn, anything else? Canola and barley. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
say that's about right. Okay. Okay. So typically then, like, similarly to us, one growing season, right? Um, tell me a little bit about common management practices, meaning are, are most growers um, conventional till, no-till? Do they do strip tillage? W- what does the kind of typical farm practices look like in terms of preparation and year-over-year management? <laughs> It's kind of hard to tell, right? Um, yeah, well, it depends on the soils. If you have uh, heavy tillage working on, um, if you have hilly areas, depends on the, the widths of the machineries, um, especially in hilly areas. Or if you do a lot of horticulture, you won't have um, wide widths going on. Um, there's a lot of restriction going on as well. For example, in um, water protection areas where you're not allowed to do plowing after after canola, the, that's where you're limited in your um, tillage. Yeah. Say for water management. conservation purposes. Exactly. Exactly. Are those typically drier areas? Is that? Well, this year was a little special because everything was dry, basically. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like uh, all of Europe basically suffered from something like a drought. Uh, was horrible in some of the regions. Yeah, corn was maybe like knee high, um, even though it was planted at the accurate planting date. Um, but we, you know, without water, you cannot do anything, um, as you guys know. So <laughs> it's a bit yeah. tricky this year. So I have a Go question ahead. about the width. You're saying depending on the width of your equipment, does that is that a regulatory thing or just? Go into that just a little bit for me. Well, when we talk about farm sizes, you'll uh-huh. have different ones. I mean, comparing North Germany to the Eastern region or to the South, mm-hmm. um, you will your fields are just um, smaller compared to one another. And then it does make sense really to have wide working widths to work on in the uh-huh. field. Yeah. Um, especially when we talk about horticulture in the Western right, region. Right. That's um, that's just it. Okay. So like, if you're mer- working in a smaller field, let's let's put aside the horticulture stuff like in it if you had a smaller field with corn or canola are you less likely or more likely to to use tillage well of course yeah we will use tillage but it depends on the field if you have let's say um going back on that 60 acre um what what will be the average size of um, farmer fields in germany um it would be just normal to have a size of what, like uh, four to five uh, meters of a of a tillage width, of a cultivator width. Yeah, th- there's so many different kind of types of operations out there. Like, there's mm-hmm. a huge variety, and I think one of the reasons for it is, as we said before, there there might be a difference between the south and the east, or even the south and the north. You know, depending mm-hmm. on from where you're looking at. Back where I come from, back in the day dad would basically divide his farm into equal pieces to all his kids if they wanted to join the farming operation. So they would all kind of start off with their own uh, land and equipment. Back in the north, it it was done a little differently. Uh, Usually it was one of the older kids, mostly the oldest son, overlooking the farm operations after dad kind of pulled out. That's why in the south we have a lot of very small structured fields where Sometimes they even operate with uh, a working width of two two meter fifty uh, or three meters even, while in the north they would go up to bigger sizes. Okay. So in the south, you're saying when that was where areas typically dads would split the farms. That's why you have more defined areas. Yes, you know, to give you an example, 
I think the average planter size where, where we come from is around eight rows, which usually is a size contracting businesses run, for example. It can go up to like 24 rows or something, but I think the average size would be eight. Okay. And if I would go out in the south with an eight-row planter, there's instances where I would basically have to call my neighbor and ask him whether I could do his field too because it's just so small, you know. <laughs> um, you know, that's not common, but it can happen. Uh, while in the north, you can you can drive for hours on mm-hmm. the same field. Bas- it's the same like you have here, right? Yeah. Well, what's also big um, is that you share your machinery where it's not really um, a mortar size to buy your planter yourself, a true planter, but if you share that with a certain farmers in your area, it will make more sense to to plant all the crop um, in, in April, for example, and share the planter yeah. during this time. Do you see that more? Is that more common for folks that farm kind of, as you had said earlier, like part-time or as, as not their full-time job that they're sharing equipment? Or is that very common across all of Germany? I, I can speak um, for the south of Germany. That is very common about there, around there, yeah. Yeah, I think it comes down to the interest and also whether I could pull aside my ego or not. Because, yeah, it, it sounds horrible if I say it that way, but sometimes guys, they, they just buy their own equipment because then they're not dependent on anybody else. They can go out to the field whenever they like to. But it might not be as feasible as if you would share it. But as soon as you share it, you know, you do not have the same cost. You can basically split that up. And coming back on different farm sizes and types, you will, will be independent from your livestock. If you have more time to be in the barn taking care of your livestock, maybe you will not think about that again if you should buy that um, planter or yeah. not, that aerobe planter, or share that with your neighbor. Yeah. When it comes to corn, planting season is not very long. Mm-hmm. It can range somewhere between 10 days, maybe 20 days. So, you know, overall... Meaning if you have like that planter back home, you would probably not use it that much out of the year, depending on whether you would do canola with it or sugar beet as well. So it would sit there for 11 months, maybe even longer, and rot, you know, basically. (laughs) So how many, on average, like if there's a group of farmers that buy a piece of equipment together to share, what's the average number of growers to buy that? Like is it usually two or three? Is it usually four or five? Like what typical number of growers that go into a piece of uh, equipment together? Well, it depends on the farm size. If there is an area where there are bigger farmers, they wouldn't normally um, be a part of that group. Okay. So um, going back on that part-time farmers, there will be like four or five of them. Yeah. Generally speaking. For my uncle, it was exactly that way because I had a dairy farm, so he would buy... some of the trailers with his neighbors, you know, those specialty trailers he would not use every day. We just two or three guys involved, and then they would share. How do they handle an operator? Do they hire an operator? Is it everybody does their own farm and kind of hand over the keys to the next guy? How do they handle who operates the planter for the season? That's one way to organize it. You know, sometimes you operate it yourself or rent the machine from that group, and then you use it yourself. And the other way would be you rent the driver with it. Who's the driver? Depends. <laughs> <laughs> I like that sentence, yeah. <laughs> it usually applies to everything. <laughs> Can be a guy who 
who's farming himself, who has a little more time on his hand to, to do the operations for others as well, can also be a hired hand of somebody. So tell me a little bit about, like, Lara, I wanted to come back to you. For the kind of the smaller farm operations that kind of co-op together, it sounds like one of the ways that they maintain profitability is by also having other streams of income, right? So they may have a couple smaller farms, but your family also has what I think we figured out is a pullet is a kind of like a, a smaller chicken, correct? Yeah, raising chickens, exactly. Okay. okay. Um, how many how many head of chicken do you have? Well, that's a tough question. I need to be <laughs> I need to get better at how many head of pullet do you have? Well, as I said, I'm not counting them every day. That's a tough question. <laughs> I know a farmer back where I'm from who raises sheep, and anytime anyone asks him how many sheep do you have, he says, I don't know, I always fall asleep. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. I see what he did there. Do you have like a, a kind of an estimation, close number? Well, it's around th- 50,000. I'm sorry, 50,000? That's about right. Divided wow. into two barns because we of the restrictions, you know. We can dive deep into that, but maybe it will take us another two hours or more. <laughs> well, maybe we could do it for just a little bit. <laughs> uh, so is, is, that, is that fairly common? Like, do most smaller farming operations also have livestock, whether it be pullets or sheep or cattle or... Uh, is your family kind of on the larger end of the livestock operation that... It, it depends on the few. Um, in the eastern region, a farm will be around 2,000 until 4,000 acres. And we in the south, um, having 250 acres would be quite large. So, yeah, we will. my family farms full-time. So um, pullets will be something um, uh, do full-time farming. We have a lot of dairy farms around um, hog barns. Okay, so not so uncommon here. Uh, we also have a lot of farming operations that also have livestock. Um, yeah, so those are some of the more common ones that, that we see here, too. Probably not to the extent of 50,000. <laughs> They're small. Uh, They're small, yeah, They're still, small animals. Still. <laughs> so you mentioned hog barns. You mentioned cattle. You mentioned, uh, I'm going to say chickens. I think that's how most yeah. of our listeners will kind of understand. Yeah. Um, is it also common? What What are some other common like streams of income maybe that that smaller farms have? Is it fairly common that if you're a smaller farm that you also have livestock plus a YouTube channel? <laughs> oh, well, you <laughs> mentioned those two. <laughs> you mentioned that your family also uh, does like some lumber work. That's um, right. Are there other common streams of income that you see kind of in the in the south of? Of Germany, where there's some smaller farms. Well, what became really big is um, mobile chicken barns, oh, yes. because you don't um, you don't have to ask the government to buy a barn. Actually, you can just um, pull that trailer out in your garden. And what becomes really big on that is um, ah, so um, folks can drive up there and pick up the yeah. Themselves. Okay, okay. So like a uh, straight oh. straight to consumer. So so. With these mobile chicken barns, these aren't going to be, like, if, if there's similar things in the U.S. No, um, what I'm going with this, you will ask me about the income of smaller farmers, yes. and they just get the idea of um, 
building or buying that that trailer where they can have like up to 200 chicken and then selling the eggs um, in that how to say that self-service okay yeah some of them have a little storage area Mm -hmm. on the farm where you can drive up to that's what i meant with you know where you can put coins in and get is it like a vending machine yeah like one you have in the hall which you can help yourself with so it's almost like a farmer's market. Yes. yes. They yes. take the, basically these mobile barns. They go to like an area where maybe more farmers have produce. No. They In will this have case, the they just have the eggs, right? Yeah, they just have the eggs. And okay. Yeah. So do people come to your farm or like is your dad kind of mobile in taking? No, they'll come to my farm. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like a farmer's market. They'll okay. just, um, you'll drive back from work um, and just stop at your local farmer and get the the trace of eggs out of the like a refrigerator at refrigerator. the end of your drive. Yeah. Okay. yeah. There's actually I know a farmer who has a refrigerator at the end of his driveway. Yeah. And that became really big. Yeah. So let me make sure I kinda understand this. The idea of like a mobile barn is big because it kind of there's no government regulations. You don't have to ask the government then to put it on your property. It's mobile. Right. Right. And what you do with that barn then is it's kind of like a community, I guess I want to say a community service, but basically people can come to the farm, they can self-serve or there's some way that they can leave money and take eggs. You as a farmer don't have to be there and supervise that. You'll just put the eggs in the fridge. They will um, throw in the coins and you will get that as fresh as you could get. Awesome. I think that's really cool. And that kind of says something, I think, to me a little bit about farming communities and kind of the trust that we have in neighbors. And, I mean, that's even present in the U.S., and it sounds like it is for you guys, too. There almost has to be a high level of trust there. And and I think when it comes to Germany, I want to jump in here, is that direct marketing that really um, kind of pulled off because a lot of guys, these they kind of starting to avoid classic grocery stores because they wanted to know where their meat is coming from, where their milk is coming from, and get back to a stage where they have that bond with their grower next door. And I think that's why maybe some of these guys don't just have the eggs. They, they might have, like, a bigger portfolio out of, you know, milk, bread, maybe some strawberries or whatever have you, and kind of, yeah, build that relationship again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure if you guys heard but organic farming is really big in germany and what torsten mentioned is even bigger that people who settle for organic products they maybe wanted to um put regional products first Mm -hmm. ahead of organic products just because they know where they're coming from you'd even put like regional product popularity in front of organic exactly yeah is and also seasonality sometimes, you know, we, we are blessed with having everything available and on our fingertips, yeah. whatever season it is. But these guys, they usually follow a path where um, sometimes they order like a box of different local uh, fruits or whatever. And they, they are usually differentiating due to the season, mm-hmm. due to the season. So I was working on a dairy farm back home for a while. And these guys, they started to manufacture ice out of their milk. So to increase the value, they, they had, like, different flavors. And lucky for them, they were pretty close to the Swiss and French border. So there were lots of people driving through. And 
worked out great. Very nice. So on the note of regional, what do you feel like drives that? Is it kind of the German consumer that desires, frankly, efficiency? I don't need to go through somebody else or to a store. I can go right to my local neighbor and get my eggs. Is it is it a value of, I like that it's regional. I know where these came from, and they I feel like they taste better. What do you feel like kind of drives, I guess, regional purchasing of goods? Maybe the consciousness yeah. of where product's coming from okay. and who I support because I wanted to support my local farmer. Maybe that's, the mi- that's in the minds of the people. A little bit of everything, especially the taste. From, uh, from what I've heard from, from a lot of these guys is that they believe everything tastes the same these days, you know, and, and then there's a long ways of transport behind tomatoes or, you know, especially fruits in Europe. They, they travel around the globe. Most, I think apples, as far as I know, they don't just come out of Germany, for example, get transported from Spain, from New Zealand, or whatever have you. So Really? Yeah. Oh, that's surprising, because I feel like it, I've not been to Germany, but it, from what I've heard, the climate would be great for apples. Yeah, yeah so it is. Yes. <laughs> that, that's interesting. It's yeah. also the fact that nowadays you won't compete with cars anymore. I have the bigger in- engine. It's more like being... Um, being present in society to be like, uh, you know, I buy my <laughs> fruits at the local farmer. Yeah, yeah. You still go to the discounter? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's a bit of a competition here. So then talk a little bit about organic farming. What What is kind of driving that? Um, yeah, let's start there. What do, what do you feel like is kind of driving more of the organic farming market? From what I know, it's different reasons. It could be customer awareness so some of these folks they discover that they could have more money out of it by the end of the day for others it might be government subsidiaries i think you call okay it, right? yeah so they, they get a certain amount of money for doing that so that's what i want to talk a little bit more about so the government is helping out quite a bit with the organic farming side it, it pushed it a little bit yeah okay yep. okay how so can you talk a little bit more about that the overall perspective is that, for example, you have more space per head of cow, for example. You know, like different regulations. You, you, you just have a little bit of everything. But, of course, that is also a little bit more money to invest in. It's probably the same for chicken, I guess. Right, Lara? That's about right. Yeah. So in order for them to do that and switch their operation, they also have a certain period where they need to transition. And that might be not very cost efficient cost efficient for these guys so in order to do it they, they need to have a benefit out of it for sure i think what they struggle with right now due to the increased prices we see uh, in germany it's probably the same in the us the market kind of decreased a little bit because people they, they seek to invest their money elsewhere i think that has happened in the us from some organic growers that i know um I do have another question on on the um, topic of subsidies. This might be a little bit of a hard right, but uh, <laughs> I'm not a I'm not an expert there. So no, yeah. that's okay. I'm just that's I'm just curious. True. If you don't know, you don't know. Um, but so what I have heard, um, it's the subsidies are different over in Europe compared to the U.S., where our subsidies for agriculture are generally almost entirely in crop insurance. Our crop insurance price is very low um, to insure the crop, but that's about it. And the biggest subsidies goes to like corn and beans. So that's why we grow corn and beans. Um, What I've heard about in Europe is that 
everyone kind of gets the same subsidy no matter what they're growing and that new equipment was subsidized. So do you, what, what is your guys' experience with that? Like how, what, what's it like over in Europe or in Germany? Specifically, well, I actually have to have some some reading up to do. Uh, but back when I was was in the topic, it was like you could get a subsidy per farmland, like per acre uh, you farmed. Okay. And then there's also different programs they started. I think the latest one I've heard of was technology related. So they funded, they they had some funding in there for technology that was more efficient, especially in sprayers or fertilizer spreaders, for example, or slurry tankers. So that guys would make the transition to yeah to more efficient product. Okay. Yeah. Have anything to add? Coming back um, to livestock, organic farmers um, will get subsidized quite a lot. I mean, um, it is, it is a bit of a cycle because the government um, will give money to those who wanted to build a barn, um, but you have to build three different zones like within the barn. Then you have your winter garden, and you then you have the pasture around the barn, um, the barn. So you will miss um, out on yield from that cropland, which you have to convert to, to whatever. Your barn. Your, yeah, that's right. The barn. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> there's some. There's usually the the barns or the subsidies for barns in the U.S. is just you don't have to pay taxes on it. <laughs> And there's a lot that get put up when, <laughs> when that happens. Yeah, it's deductible. Yeah. Tax deductible. Yeah. Do you guys have labels over here, you know, for organic products or something? Yeah. So there's like a certified organic label. Um, and then there's other labels that companies just throw on to food. Okay. Like gluten-free on a package of watermelon. <laughs> Those always bother me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because if I look at it from a customer perspective, you know, like it privately, I, I find it confusing because we have quite a lot of different labels over there, you know, organic labels as well as the, we probably would call that the holding form. So we'd have a label for the nutrition scores ranging from, I think it's A to G or something. And then you would have a label saying that it was organically produced. and But some some labels come not from like a government ministry or something. Mm -hmm. They were founded by, let's say, a grocery chain. And, and then you could end up having like a piece of meat in a box where you would have like a couple of labels on there so you would not really see the product. So a lot of people got confused which one is the true label, <laughs> which is not. <laughs> yeah. There's also to add one label which, um, which con contains um, the, the housing of the animals. If you have, like, I was talking about the three climate zones in your barn, or you just have one compared to the three, or um, even a farming organic. So that that's another label you have to take into account. Yeah, there's quite a lot out there. So it seems like <laughs> there's also a lot of regulation around, like, livestock and livestock production, too. Yes. Yeah, you would have regulations telling you how much space those animals would uh, would need to have if you buy a new barn, for example, and take that into account depending on the amount of animals you want to have in that barn. So it's quite a lot to wrap your head around. So let's talk a little bit about soil types. What is like a common soil type or soil profile that you, you would come across in Germany? Really depends on the area. 
Okay. I feel like that's the, the most common answer we are giving here today. <laughs> <laughs> so if you look to the south, you will find a lot of heavy soils, more in the loamy or clay area. You know, it's I cannot generalize it, but just to give you a perspective on it. And if you look towards the north, um, you would find a lot of sandy soils. Like, yeah, it's that's it's hard to tell because... You know, from a from a geological perspective, Germany is situated more or less in the center of Europe. You would have the Swiss Alps in the south, and you would have the northern and the I think it's I think we call it Baltic Sea in the north. Though, quite a lot of variety in there. But in general, back in the day, they tried to evaluate or build a system around soils, which is similar to what we have in a school, right? We'd range from zero to 100 soil points. We refer to them as soil points, meaning zero would be the worst, you know, probably not occurring everywhere because, you know, you have some kind of grade, and then 100 would be the best. And 100 translated into normal language would be like the blackest of the blackest soil, the most fertile soil. So these are very, that would be like our very high organic matter type soils. Okay, so this is interesting because it's, it's a thing for... You know, soil maps have been around for a long time yeah. in the U.S. Um, Smart Firmer gave you the ability to see those zones on the go, right? But it sounds like you guys have kind of a more of a score. More than organic matter maps, you had basically like scoring of zones, correct? Yeah. So that was, I'm not sure when they really did that, um, kind of a while ago. So usually guys would still do their soil probes but because it, those numbers, they would just give you an overview of what you, you have on your field and can vary a little bit. You know, soil is never like still it kind of there's a lot of movement going on. <laughs> so how common is smart firmer? Do I'd say with with our guys running it, there's there is there's at least one at every planner, maybe even two on average. Yeah. Has there been some coaching involved then in understanding that zero to 100 rating compared to this is what this means kind of on an organic matter map? Yeah, we we struggled a little bit because when seeing that metric, a lot of folks get very enthusiastic. What they maybe misunderstood in the beginning, and it, it comes down to us because we might have not done the right coding for that, was, uh, you know, it is not reflecting what a soil probe, uh, a soil probe would show you which maybe can reach down to 70 something centimeters back home it just shows you what is happening in the in the furrow which in our case usually is around two inches deep when it comes to corn so right now the the most famous metric for the smart firmer guys would probably be moisture because before that they, they really didn't know what was going on i mean that even more applies to guys who have an operator running their planter if you own the field, you might know different zones in your field by heart because, you know, you have farmed that land for uh, quite a while. But if you have operators maybe new to the farm and they might not go down from the cabin that much, it is way better to have a smart firmer installed from my perspective. So they're pretty happy with the smart firmers just being, it sounds like there's a lot more of hiring operators and sharing planters and such. So that's that seems even more valuable than than probably most of the, most of the farmers in the U.S. who own their land and they, like you said, they know it by heart. So I want to dive into that a little bit too because one of the things that stuck out to me on that 
idea of many farmers buying into a piece of equipment together and a planner being one of that. How do you kind of handle conversations with growers or do you run into challenges where they may say, um, well, I'm going to have to talk to everybody that's involved with the purchase. I don't own the planner. It's a group of us who do. So we'll have to, to talk about that. Like, I guess, what are the challenges with introducing precision planting to a grower onto a planner that's owned by, by maybe four or five different growers working together? Exactly what you suggested, basically, right? <laughs> they usually have to go around to, to all their peeps in, in the group and, and make sure everybody agrees with, with the investment. It, you know, it does not just apply to the folks buying it together. It also applies to the farms where maybe the dad and the son or, you know, the dad and the daughter are still running the operations. So okay. they usually back and forth to each other. But the interesting thing to me is you would suggest uh, or you would think that it is usually the younger person of the two reaching out because they, I don't know, if they maybe saw your YouTube video or your podcast. It sometimes is the older version of the family group, which is great because, um, you know, they also got the value of what they might miss out on in the field. What is that age? Because you mentioned earlier there's times, I think this is more common in the South, where dad would split up farm ground to their kids. Yep. Yep. Correct. Around what age do you see that happen? When do kids start to typically take over their allotment of ground? Well, it's a tough one. Depends yeah. if they're still in university, age of the parents, um, employees on the farm. Um, if there are more employees involved, uh, kids normally have more time visiting schools or doing extra apprenticeship, going out on internships in different countries just to have more time and um, gain new knowledge about farming. So um, it, it really depends. Um, dropping out of school by an early age allows them to do an apprenticeship. This is really common in Germany, um, doing a farming apprenticeship and then taking over the farm with your family. In most cases, uh, your dad. So you work together with them on the farm and then you'll take the farm in your over in your early 20s something like that yeah, yeah. i think that will be the most common so a lot of times case. that's still when dad is still physically able to help yes a lot of times if i think for for most of that team uh, like lara just mentioned um the transition is very variable you know sometimes they drop out really fast sometimes they still have out because you need to look at it from another perspective. There usually is a lot of expertise, your dad or your uncle, or you have a you know farm with. So I think everybody new to running a farm, him or herself, is is very happy and yeah, also thankful for that expertise, swimming with them for a little while uh, until they are able to make the first steps. I think that a lot of times, and it sounds like that sets up that younger person, that son or daughter, to be the decision maker on the farm yeah. in yep. their late 20s or early 30s. 30s roughly does that sound fair yeah that's probably a little different than what we typically see in the u.s i think there's a lot of times where dad continues to farm or be very active on the farm until he's physically unable um there are some people that start to that handoff process a little bit earlier but dad tends to want to stay around on the farm yeah. that's kind of well, been his life's yeah. passion so he wants i can to assure you that's around. that's the same in germany <laughs> okay so there is that <laughs> They, they sometimes make you believe you're running the show, but in reality, you well, know, worst, they still have... Worst okay. case, there's a grandpa around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
There's many, many a, a grandpa, or not many now, but I've definitely seen a couple Twitter posts of someone saying my grandpa started out with the with the uh, team of horses here, and now he's running like three monitors in <laughs> a combine. <laughs> Just quite a change over a lifetime. Jumping back into having discussions with four or five growers that all buy into a planter. How do you kind of overcome that? Has there been any strategies, Torsten, that you've kind of implemented to get everybody together at the same time? Unfortunately, there is no playbook here, I think. You usually have to engage or try to engage with all of them. What we found to be working the best was to just invite all of them into the field. Like we, we tried to replicate the PTI farm in Germany just a little bit. I, I shouldn't say Germany. It's more or less, you know, it's a, it's a place for all the Europe team to come to and do more or less the same things that you do here with the PTI farm. So it's a, it's a place for conversations, a place to engage, to dig some roots, to look at the plans. Um, and that turned out to be a great starter for everybody. Some of these folks might take a little longer to buy into the idea especially for retrofit because a lot of growers back home, they're not used to retrofit at all. They're, you know, they might be in a stage where the U.S. has been like 13 years or 15 years ago, trading in for new in a, in a regular basis. And it is intriguing to a lot uh, of folks because they sometimes have a little spare time. I, I shouldn't say spare time, but a little time of their hands in wintertime. So they would be able to do the retrofit themselves in some of the cases. Is it common in an instance where you have four or five growers buying in that if they do purchase precision, are they all buying into that together? Usually, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you see that too? Because you had mentioned, I think, more on the western side of Germany that there are some corporately owned farms. Uh, the east, yeah. The east on the side. east. Yes. Okay. Yeah. How does that, does that present challenges or what kind of challenges does that present? Well, we haven't dipped our toes too much into that area because we wanted to concentrate on a couple of, of blank spots we still have there. But I think from from an overall perspective, it is a challenge because for the guys that run the big operations, especially ones who are not sitting in the cap anymore, they have other things they, they want to look at um, than you know a certain brand or a certain value. Like We usually try and teach them agronomy a lot but at the end of the day, they, they also just need to cover the acres. And uh, is, since we are at a, at a beginner stage when it comes to retrofit and precision planting, we are not there where they, they really see the full potential for them. It just counts to, to put the acres in. With them wanting to put acres in, do they have the avail availability of a high-speed planner? Usually, yes. They do, okay. Yes, yep. Meaning through retrofit, or are there other OEMs that have some sort of high-speed option there's other OEMs uh, in Europe um, yeah different colors same like here uh, <laughs> I, I'd say in the you know there's generally speaking there's still a lot of emotions involved when it comes to purchasing equipment it's probably the same here right you grew up with no we don't no, have any right. of that here <laughs> <laughs> for us it might not be the yellow rims but you know maybe the red rims you know depending on the area where we where you go to and Again, we are very diverse in planter make and OEM. There's quite a lot over there, so it, it's a little mess. <laughs> <laughs> What's common? For most of the guys in in my area, that would be uh, brands called Horst and Fatterstadt. Mm -hmm. They might not be that popular over here. And then 
in in the west from from where I live, it might be Monosem, which also is owned by John Deere, as far as I know. Um, and there's other others out there that you, yeah they they're not very popular over here. We, we also have you know we are also lucky to see a couple of Kinsey retrofits in Germany. <laughs> very rare, but it happened. Okay. <laughs> So talk to me a little bit about your research farm. What have you found that, that growers have really taken to and seem to have the most interest in on the, on the farm? So we basically try to replicate a plot protocol where we go through the entire priorities of the planner pass, starting with the row cleaners, ending with the closing system. So which are different planting depths, different speeds, different kind of closing systems next to each other. And the most intriguing for most of the guys, I think, was probably around downfalls and maybe closing. In terms of, you know, what you could do by tweaking your planter a little bit more than you used to. Because most, mostly you just set your planter once and then you start running it and you will not do a lot of adjustments. And I think the, the opportunities we have gave them the freedom of kind of leveling out a couple of settings they had and adapting them to their various zones because we can have a lot of heterogeneous field back home. <laughs> um, so talk to me a little bit about then like when it comes to precision products, which ones do you guys feel like have have kind of taken off? What what has the most interest among German farmers? So I'd I'd say it it depends. We have guys who really love borophores because they struggle a lot, especially in weather conditions or in, in special conditions to close the furrow. So they, they saw a lot of loss there and they, they wouldn't know how to help themselves. So when we came around with furrow or with a two two stage closing system, they really loved that idea. And others they really jumped ship uh, when they when they recognized there's a chance for them to set their downforce setting a lot of times while driving over the field. So things these two might be the the ones that a lot of guys chose when they start started. When it comes to overall vision, I believe that liquid products, liquid fertilizer products might be the next big thing for our market. So explain that a little bit. Are you guys commonly granular fertilizer now? Yes. Yeah, that's a big thing in Germany. So I think the most farmers aren't aware of um, the potential of liquid fertilizer just yet. Um, I think when it comes big, a challenge would be the pro, to how to provide the liquid fertilizer for them. Um, if it's available, how much in advance do I have to take orders? And um, yeah. yeah. Also the providers, right? A lot of exactly traders or dealers, they, they do not really sell these things right now, or the product itself. That's what I was going to ask. So, like, here in the U.S., we've got a number of partners even that will subsidize the farmers putting on um, our V-applies to put on their product. Is there is there many manufacturers or company liquid fertilizer companies in Germany? They're very rare, like... I wouldn't know if there's one in Germany, but we have a couple around Germany. Um, yeah. And do they like it? Are, are they not German companies? I'm guessing yeah. they're shipping exactly. it in from somewhere, yeah. so it's probably still a little cost prohibitive. But I'm guessing that 
all fertil all fertilizer just like oh, here yeah. is a little <laughs> cost prohibitive right now. <laughs> but that but that's the thing. Granular really took off in the last year or one and a half maybe, uh, double the price or even a little more. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was super hard to see. And I think liquid can do a lot of yeah. We have like Lara mentioned, we have a lot of areas where there is a high concentration of livestock operations and especially in the north we we found that a lot of folks have problems with what we probably would refer to their phosphorus balance in the ground. So they have, you know, they're on the edge of having too much. Mm. So since since they still need to apply in order for the plant to grow, they found that using liquid, they could apply it more accurately and using less product. So that helped them out quite a lot. So you have growers that are basically seeing kind of a cost savings then from going to a liquid fertilizer. Yes, that that as well. Yes, yeah. How have you or have you kind of worked with or encouraged growers to come overcome some of the logistical concerns with getting liquid fertilizer? Like, is it are you kind of intentional about working with them or messaging like, here's where you need to be getting it from, you need to be getting it by this time, or you're not going to get <laughs> liquid fertilizer. Uh, we wish we would be there, but we are we are a couple of steps behind because okay. we, we j- since we just started, we have to dip our toes a little bit ourselves before we can do the <laughs> you know true recommendations. <laughs> so you feel like you're still in a phase of kind of proving out. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think from my um, from my point of view, um, German farmers aren't really aware of what the benefits from um, liquid fertilizer are. There's like silo areas where it took off already, but yeah, like Lara said, most of the times they are not aware of it because I think Jason Webster um, had those those phrases. I think his seven words that cost you the most was like, "We have done it that way." We've, We've always, always done it this way. Thank you. Yeah. So I think that's what applies to a lot of guys back home. Probably same here. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's a universal human <laughs> tendency. Yeah, I agree. So you kind of mentioned a little bit to kind of overcoming the perception a little bit of growers in Germany don't yet really think retrofit, right? There's a tendency to still want to pull toward, well, we've always just gone out and bought a brand new planter every couple of years. We buy brand new that new is better than, than used or retrofit. Um, How are you overcoming that? How, How do you kind of approach that conversation? Sometimes it happens by accident. So we had a couple of conversations that were super interesting to me since, you know, I'm, I'm still collecting, I'm still training. So, <laughs> um, you know, they recognize that a lot of OEMs, they still use similar designs to what they used when whenever they purchased their original planner. So trading in for new would not make that much of a difference because it might just be a couple of design tweaks, but the overall principle remains. But they would probably, like, they, they would still find some kind of issues they would see with their current planner they could not address. So they were waiting for the OEMs to make the next, the next step or the next big leap, come around with something new so they would trade in again. And since we have the opportunity to kind of give them a module or, like, you know, different kind of products that could solve that problem and they do, would not have to look into the entire thing... That was super intriguing to most of them. Yeah. So almost the speed with which you could get them a solution. Yes. Yeah. Has been a, a beneficial point. Yeah. 
And, and honestly, I think with with the accuracy or the re the resolution we can offer in terms of row by row, for example, I think there's not a lot of other folks out there who can who can give that by using the existing planter, right? You would have to make a commitment to either trading in or, you know, something else. So what are some of the biggest then concerns agronomically of, of the German grower? I guess yield loss. Yes. Yeah. And it has been it has been very hard this year because of the drought I mentioned before. So yeah, I think you need to differentiate. There's only so much we can do to help them out with the technology side of things and with, with teaching things. It, it doesn't really have to start with retrofit. It could also be as simple as showing them the value of maintenance because in different areas of Germany, there's still, you know, they still still don't use that planter too much of a year. <laughs> can refer to that to my family. You know, you would use that for a couple of days, you put it back in the shed. And if you're really, really into it, you might grease it a little bit and then go back next year and pull it out and keep on driving. So, yeah. I think the yield thing that is that was pretty big and will continue to be big. Yeah. So our precision planning team in Germany, I believe, is is three people. Correct. Four. It's four. It's four. Yes. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, it is it is you two that sit here, Torsten and Laura. It is Philip, and I'm forgetting somebody. Johannes. Johannes. Yes. Okay. In my defense, Johannes has been he's been only on the team a couple months. Yeah. yeah, but I've met him, so that shame on me. I should have been <laughs> able to remember him when he came. I'm sorry, Johannes, if you're listening. I can picture your face, buddy, but I couldn't come up with your name. That's uh, give me a little credit. You got back to you on that. <laughs> <one>. <laughs> um, I think your kind of day-to-day operation of precision planting in Germany obviously probably looks different than what we are here in the U.S. So, can you guys take me through what does a typical day look like for you guys? What what is in your professional life with precision planning taking up most of your concentration and time right now? Well, when I got back from my training from the U.S., uh, my U.S. colleagues asked me about, have you been on phone calls yet? And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm being busy in the field uh, trying to do planter plots and uh, for our testing fields. So that's what we're mostly busy with um, around south of uh, Germany and also with our new employee Johannes up in the north we have different testing plots where we just make um, coming up with different results in in the end of this year um, for just comparing our products on different soil types different areas um, on different topography um, just to see where we're going with this from this year until next year where we be will be maybe more specific um, referring to um, stones for testing plots um, doing with rear wheel or other row cleaners um, speed tubes speed tubes yeah thank you for that <laughs> yeah and, and to add to that for us since we're all new to the team this year might have been something like a trial year for us We've been doing a lot of different things at the same time. You know, we've all been looking into marketing strategies. We've all tried to be there on, on field days to spread the word that we are out there offering retrofit and, and also maintenance opportunities. And then, as you mentioned before, we also try and get our hands on building and structuring that tech hub, or what we refer to as tech hub, but it is like a technology hub, a little sister of, of the PTI, basically, where we were planning on looking into making something like a growers week or growers weeks 
where we'd have different groups from different countries and doing exactly the same like you could do over here, like, you know, following your role model where we would invite them to come and join us in the field, maybe have a ride and drive, uh, look at different row unit models, look at maintenance, and just start the overall conversation so that they know they have somebody there as professional as you guys who would help them out no matter what, you know, no matter the, the, the planter color or whatever. And it turned out to be, um, you know, sometimes a, a struggle in the beginning because we, we didn't know uh, where to start first, but we see we see the light on the, on the end of the tunnel. You should mention our Tech Hub Field Day on the 8th oh of yes. September. That's a great placement. Thanks. So <laughs> 8th of September, we will have our first Tech Hub tour in, in Munich, Germany. So whoever's listening to this and the podcast hopefully still out there, you're invited to join us and... For more information, please go and visit Instagram or Facebook. We're looking how forward to have you. How do they find you on those? We'll be precisionplanting.de, I think. Yes, that's exactly yes. yeah. That's yeah. exactly it. Precisionplanting.de. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. We also have a email which is info.deutschland at precisionplanting.com. Okay, you got to spell that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would take You're like an hour. You're going to get a bunch of American emails. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, if, uh, if you are a American grower and you, you know, have a vacation overseas, just give us a call, ring Wouldn't us up. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. yeah, come on over. So I think the one thing that we really haven't touched much about is what does a typical dealership look like in Germany? Can you guys comment on that a little bit? Well, there's a, a big variety in size and also territory. Um, most dealership would look like um, having a portfolio that ranges from tractors through tillage uh, to hay equipment. Sometimes they have lawnmowers because lawn is very big. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and within those structures, we see a tendency towards product specialist, edgy um, smart farming areas. Yeah. Maybe to jump in there, a, you know, a classic rep at a, at a European dealership usually has to cover like a hundred different suppliers of different products. So at some point it might be too much. Um, and with the speciality coming up, I think we've seen that in, in smart farming where they usually have somebody dedicated to smart farming, like, you know, GPS systems of different varieties and also everything around prescription maps and that, that kind of stuff. There has been a lot of retrofitting um, for GNSS. Yes. So that is one retrofitting market we have in Germany going on right now. Um, a lot of retrofitting for GNSS? Right, GPS Com guidance. Ah, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> we usually refer to it as you know GNSS for like Global Navigation Satellite right, System. Right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> We can't handle that many letters. We just have <laughs> GPS. <laughs> so you said there's been a lot of retrofitting for that? Yeah, yeah. But somehow, or at some point, you know, there won't be retrofitting in this area necessary because by buying tractors um, from from your production area, you will have that included. So, Who are the common GNSS retrofitters? Like what are the kind of some of the common companies that do that? There's Trimble, Trimble and Novatel. Yeah, they're pretty big. And then there's a couple of other smaller companies. Um, some of them are from, from Asia coming over there now. Yeah. yeah, but those must be the two common ones. And you're saying that's probably going to slowly go away. 
because more and more OEMs will integrate that into their tractors? Exactly. Why do you suppose that hasn't been the case before? Um, most of the small farmer um, who farm with their very old trackers, they don't have GPS just yet, um, and they will add it manually to their steering system. Um, this is one option, or if you buy one from your production, um, you can add that afterwards. Is there anything that you guys, either of you have seen from U.S. growers in general that, like a practice, anything like that, that would be good for German farmers to know or, or maybe something that they could start doing that would benefit them? Well, I think when it comes to nutrition, for example, the uh, like we touched on it a little bit with you know granular versus liquid fertilizer. It's also the way we apply things. I, th I think if I'm not completely off, you guys do a lot of site dressing over here. That's fairly common. Liquid yes. fertilizer. Yes, uh, w we do not do that. Uh, it's, it's not like very popular over there, and it might be interesting for a lot of guys in the future. Yeah. On the on the other hand, when it comes, for example, to sprayers, Europeans tend to tend to be maybe like ten years ahead because of the government regulations we have. They they had to switch quite a lot of gears in order to be able to apply different kind of products. So when it comes, for example, to post wave modulation or circular, how do you call it, like circular booms? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that has been very common. Or over circulation. Yes, yeah, circulation. circulation. Yeah, thank you. Yep. So, yeah, that has been very common over there. And that the way we apply that, I think the next step in, in sprayers would probably be by going to spot spraying and de dedicating where there is a weed versus the crop. I think that would be that would be super cool. Saving even more herbicides up yeah. to 70 or 90%. Yeah. How many planters do an on-planter fertilizer? Ooh, that is hard to tell. I do not have a number in my head or in the top of my head, but some folks do granular. Like they have a separate shank in front. And then I think you refer to it like the two-by-two two rule over here mm -hmm. where you go like, I don't know how many inches to the left and then down. There's a there's a very common oh, yeah, basically fertilizer <laughs> placement <laughs> tool. Yeah, that two-by-two. Yeah. Two, yep. yeah. Exactly. So we would have something like that too. But um, in some areas this year it was pretty pretty rough because – you know, we, we might have seen that with the furrow of, of your seedlings popping open at some point if it is too dry. We had that happening to a lot of guys with that fertilizer shank, mm. with the fertilizer. Due to not very much of rain, the fertilizer would not really mineralize or would, would not kind of float in the soil. It would basically just sit there. Mm. Yeah. So do most planters have at least some type of planter applied fertilizer or it it just kind of depends it kind of depends yeah okay I mean, th there's still a, a lot of guys using fertilizer spreaders you know and and then there's the areas with with the livestock who tend to have a lot of slurry which yeah. they also apply when do you see fertilizer spreaders go what time of year oh that's that's hard to tell mostly spring and fall okay yeah so when it comes to corn for example the Classic nitrogen would maybe be around June. So, you know, you would have 
maybe a different treatment, okay. and, and one of them would be around June. So it's more common to see a fertilizer cart come along in June. Okay. So yeah. that's kind of how you guys are doing your post-plant yeah. fertilizer yeah. operation. Okay. That's it. That's right. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay. Okay. So I think we have had you guys in studio now for quite a while, and I want to thank you very much, both of you, for your time and educating us on uh, some of the norms of German farming. I think one thing that I'll ask you before I get out, this is a before I let you go, is <laughs> I want to ask you the same question that I asked the, the Argentinian team, because I find this interesting. Um, when you come visit us in this big old town of Tremont, <laughs> do you have a favorite place that you like to eat? Rumor has it there's a lovely bakery somewhere here, right? Okay, you're talking about the confectionery. Have you've had Laura the like the giant cinnamon roll then? Like it's it's basically a cinnamon roll the size of your head. <laughs> and everybody just kinda comes in and, and pulls a Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the size of my head. My head's a little <laughs> bit bigger than yours. Yeah, no, the confectionery is, is is fantastic. That's kind of a local favorite. Yeah. We also had somebody, I don't want to know names, but I think it was a certain Jason, another colleague of ours, point out that you guys have Wally's. Is yeah. that correct? Oh, yeah. Did you not, no. were you not up at Pontiac? No, unfortunately not, but we definitely need to go there. Some, like, we've, we've heard a lot of things about that place. Wally's is an interesting place. I would say that's kind of, our team likes that place on the mornings that we go to the, to the Pontiac farm to work. We'll pull into Wally's. You can get a nice cup of coffee there. You can get breakfast sandwiches there. Uh, so that's kind of became a, a, a convenient stop for our team when we go to the farm over in Pontiac. I don't know that, no offense to anybody at Wally's, I don't know that you classify that as a fine dining, but yeah. there's a convenience <laughs> factor that I think is is nice. That, I, that same guy also taught me, uh, and you know, I'm probably a couple of years behind, about that cool trick of dipping an Oreo into a glass of milk, letting you it soak in and then eat it. You did not know about no, that? No, no. Oh, you need to go and tell everybody in your country. <laughs> I'm <laughs> So shout out to everybody. Go and do that. It's just a list. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Well, I want to thank you both again very much for being here. Uh, that's Torsten Soderling. Yes, correct. Nailed it. And Laura Hesler. That's about right. Good. You said about right. It, it's... That might be as close as I can get. You want to do it? Can you say? Go ahead. Lara Hetzler. I can't do it that well. There's no way. That's awesome. Thanks for having us. Thanks guys. for having us. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. So uh, on behalf of Freya Watson, I just want to thank everybody so much for listening and for making us a part of your day, wherever you're listening, however you're listening to the podcast where we brought in some of our German teammates, where we learned a little bit more about German farming to get a little smarter every season.